Welcome, everybody, to Cash Flow to Freedom. I had to make a quick intro to this episode because, first of all, it's awesome. We have the one and only Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets. And, you know, I don't know that there's anyone that has ever talked to, interviewed, and discussed with so many successful real estate investors and business owners as Brandon Turner hosting the Bigger Pockets podcast. And he really brings in that wealth and that knowledge on this podcast. We have a long discussion. We talk about everything from what he's doing today in the real estate world, how he's investing, but too, just in general about money and mindset and the economics of getting better and improving yourself. And it's just filled with absolute gold. I know you guys are all going to love this just as much as I did. We had an absolute blast. Brandon's such a good guy, and he's so fun to talk to. So enjoy this podcast, but I did want to give you a note right before we jump into it that although cash flow to, I talk a lot about self-storage on Cashflow to Freedom, it is not designated to self-storage. So we rolled out another podcast, Self-Storage Income. And you can jump on and go look for self-storage income and listen to that. And that is purely about self-storage. But on this podcast, this one is just about increasing your economic and overall value, putting yourself into a better position. And two, we talk a lot about on this this individual podcast and a lot of focus on scaling. You know, how do you go from buying one property to getting a whole entire portfolio. And uh, that is that is an absolute concept that I'm in love with after building and owning properties over multiple states, having a management firm, you know, and approaching over a million square feet in commercial real estate, that to me, that is where the rubber hits the road. That's what everybody's looking for. It's not the individual duplex. It's a portfolio that brings them financial freedom, really allows them to level up and to build the life that they want and are dreaming. And this this podcast today, Brandon Turner really will help deliver on that. And I know you're going to love it and walk away as happy as I did from it. So enjoy. And uh, here it is. So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here's the answer. I'm A.G. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. All right. Welcome to this episode of Cash Flow to Freedom. Today's guest, really, there's no need for an introduction, but I, I probably should in case there's there in the world that <laughs> hasn't be. heard of you. We got Brandon Turner on. Brandon Turner is obviously associated with Bigger Pockets. He runs the Bigger Pockets podcast. And he's very entrenched in the real estate world, real estate investing. He's written, I, you've written so many books. I'm like, I'm not even going to read them all off, but I'll give you yeah, a, 600, few, a few. Yes, 600. Exactly. We got rental property investing, how to invest in real estate, investing in real estate with no money down, making money in rental properties. Then you also have a 90 days of intention, which intentions, which is like your uh, journal, which I love. I, I want to talk about Thanks. that. And you also did one with your wife, correct? Yeah, managing the, the book on managing rental properties with my wife. So yeah, there. I mean, I'm sure there's something you haven't figured out to write about in real estate, but that's coming out soon, right? Yeah, we're writing one on underwater basket weaving. Should be out next week. So 
You'll learn all about how to do that. It'll be really great. <laughs> well, that's awesome, man. Uh, too, just so everybody knows, you know, Brandon is a good friend of mine, and I just absolutely think the world of him. He's, first of all, a super humble guy, and he's just done so much, and there's so much that you should really unpack out of this podcast and cultivate as much information as you can from it. We're going to try to cover as much as we can. There's just not nearly enough time to go over everything with you, man. But um, I think First of all, just start out. Why don't you tell our listeners how your journey got started and uh, kind of the path you've taken? Yeah, happy to. So I got started by uh, getting birthed uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, back 34 years ago and didn't know anything about real estate up until I was like 19. Uh, Blue collar family. So uh, my dad was a meat cutter. Mom did in-home daycare most of my life. And uh, I got out of college with a bunch of student loan debt. Well, I went into college student loan debt. Uh, when I was 19, I was in college and I rented out some rooms in the apartment I was renting. And that proved to be a really cool idea because I got to live for free. I ended up just living on the couch. What did you go to college for? Like history. Like it was like, I literally like, like I went to like this one year school. It was like a Bible college after high school. And then I went to a community college for a little bit. And I did some classes in high school uh, for college. Anyway, so I asked my like, when I went to the final college I graduated from, where I knew I was going to graduate from, I asked him, I was like, well, what's the fastest way I can get out of here? Like, what's the quickest, like, cause I had no idea what I want to do. And they're like, well, you're the way your credits will transfer. You can get out quicker with a history degree. I was like, all right, let's do that. Didn't know anything about history. Didn't care about history. I was, I was like, how do I get out quicker? So I got a history degree. Didn't use it for anything. Uh, I thought I'd go to law school. Cause I thought maybe that's like what you do with a history degree is either that or teach and ended up buying a house instead, flipped it while I lived in it, rented out the bedroom. So I kind of house hacked it and then sold it, made 20 grand. And I was like, that's the best money I ever made. So that's what I did. Now, and, uh, did Got you ever estate. think about real estate before? I mean, you said first of yeah, all, no, no, yeah, no. nothing like literally nothing. My, my parents always built their own home. So like they like four times every like three years, we'd move as a kid and they'd build, build a new home, move into it and then build another one. And they just did that. So that's like, I had a little bit of background of like knowing what a new house smelled like. And I knew what construction <laughs> looked like. Cause I'd like walk through the house every three or four years when they built a new one. And that was it. Nothing more. So I, uh, yeah, I bought a house, flipped it, made money. And I thought that sounds way better than law school. So even though I'd already taken the law school entrance exam test, the LSAT and all that, I was like, yeah, screw you it. Were that I'm going full time. Yeah, I was that far oh, along. I, I was like applying. That. Yeah, I started like applying to schools and yeah, I decided instead the real estate sounded way more fun. I actually, the truth is I started reading John Grisham books, like the firm. And like, I, <laughs> I realized like every one of his books is basically like, it sucks to be a lawyer. And then you might get shot. That's like all of John Grisham books is like, you <laughs> have to be a lawyer, you might get shot. So I like, I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. That sounds horrible. Cause like you could tell John Grisham is really like anti being a lawyer. He was one for a while. Cause everyone's like working hundred hour work, work weeks. And like, that just sounded miserable. And I was like, I don't want to do that for the next 50 years just to retire wealthy when I'm 75 or even 65 or 55. So I thought real estate sounded more fun. So I did that. How many doors do you have? As of today, I have like 97 doors. Uh, I have, I'm in contract for technically 500 more though. I think 200 of those are going to, we're going to drop off today officially because they just not going to work out. But I knew that like we, we put eight mobile home parks under contract. And so three of them are, are iffy as of right now uh, due to some like septic tank stuff that we don't want to buy septic tanks. So anyway, that it may drop off. We may end up only with 300 more. So I may have 400 by the time this episode comes out. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> now, the there are a bunch. <laughs> we'll see. The first um, houses you started doing what, now, was that in Washington? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Everything I started doing. Yep. Everything in the beginning was Washington state. And, uh, I mean, really everything up until 
four or three years ago was all Washington state uh, where I lived. So I lived in an area called Grace Harbor, very blue collar area. And you can buy a house for 60 grand, 70 grand in some areas. So I would just buy cheap rental properties then buy duplexes, bought a fourplex, bought a six, a uh, five unit, then bought another triplex. And then just a bunch of single family houses. We flipped a little bit and then bought a 24 unit. And that's what got me out of my job. I was like, I got the 24 unit. I was able to quit my job. I worked in the bank for a little while before that and quit the job at the bank went full time into just being able to live off cash flow, And yeah, at the time I was doing my own maintenance, we were managing our own properties, but so it's like semi retirement, you could call it. Was this yeah, like and then value I, add strategy or and so when you were buying these, were you really needing to turn them around yes. or were they pretty yeah. good? No. Yeah. I have never bought a property. I, I had never bought a property that uh, did not need work, like significant work done. Everything we needed work. And so I like learned, like I didn't know how to swing a hammer when I got started. Like I learned how to do a lot of stuff. And I'm not saying that people should do that. I actually think that my ability to do things now is actually what ha- held me back for a number of years. It was like, well, I can, I, you know, I can fix that water heater. I'll just do it. Instead of like thinking like a business owner of, well, how would I find a good plumber that I can rely on so I don't have to do it so I can spend my time finding more deals. I just was like, I'll go do it. And so for years, I just did all my own work and yeah, got out of that probably four years ago when bigger pocket stuff started taking more and more of my time. I was like, I got, I got to find a way to get more people involved. So that's now, where we went. And you were... When you started with Bigger Pockets, you'd originally started your own blog, right? Yeah. And then yeah. you started with Bigger Pod, uh, Pockets, started up the podcast, which is obviously, as everyone known, just done absolutely phenomenal. What do you think? What do you think of the drivers? Why was Bigger Pockets? Yeah. Why has it been so successful? And why is your podcast at Bigger Pockets? Because I mean, just it it really is. Everybody knows of the Bigger Pockets podcast in the real estate space and of you. Why do you think that success is? happen. Yeah, I, I think it's just my charm and my uh, my yeah. my wit and <laughs> I thought it was the beard, but that makes sense. It might be the beard. People are just attracted to it like bees to honey, but uh <laughs> no. Have you read the book Traction? Gino Wickman's Traction? Yeah. Yeah, so remember in that book he talks about having an integrator and a visionary. Yes. So what happened was Josh Dorkin had found a bigger pockets like 18 years ago or 15 years ago, or whatever. And he did it by himself in his basement for like eight years, just by himself, nobody else. And he was everything. And that was fine. And he got it to a really good level. I didn't come on board until he had a hundred thousand people on his email list. So that goes up. It was a sizable site. It wasn't where it was today. We weren't the largest out there, but it was big. It was a good size real estate website. No podcast at the time. I, and then when I came on, I came on originally just to help him edit blog posts. He just had too many blog posts to edit. And so I was like, well, I can edit them. And so I started just volunteer writing and then editing posts. And that turned into a little bit more work. And then that How'd turned into, hey, let's, uh, actually, so when I started that first blog, realestateinyour20s.com, it messaged him and asked him if I could just volunteer write for bigger pockets, like as a way to build my own site. And he never responded. And so like <laughs> nine months later, nine months later, he somehow stumbled across my site and then sent me a message. And uh, said, yeah, you know, like, oh, I didn't see your message from nine months earlier. Sorry. Let's, let's talk. So we started chatting on the phone. I remember just, I remember actually sitting at my apartment complex. It was after I bought my apartment and I remember sitting there on the phone, like, oh, I got to call Josh Dorkin in 10 minutes. And me and my, my wife were like, oh my gosh, it's Josh Dorkin. Like I got to call with him. And I remember being so like, whoa, you know? And uh, anyway, I, I ended up becoming Facebook friends with him, which led to him saying, I need help with the blog. And that's how I I'll do it, you know, like at the time. And this is actually a good lesson, right? Is at the time I was like that financially independent and like I'm not necessarily like I'm not buying jets or, or the jets. You know, I'm not buying baseball team or football teams. Like, but I had enough money that paid my bills. And as long as I held on to it. So because of that, I like to call that level one financial freedom. When you can pay your bills, you have the opportunity then to take risks. And that's what it's all like. So I was able to go and take this job basically with Josh Dorkin making almost no money 
on a thing that was a long shot, basically a startup for all intents and purposes. It's like, I was able to do that though, because I, I had, I didn't have a job that I had to rely on and a huge car payment and, you know, two car payments and a private school and all, I didn't have any of that stuff. Like I lived really frugally and got financial dependence on where I was at so I could take those risks. So no, I, I love that yeah. because, you know, and it's something we talk a lot about on cash flow to freedom. You know, I call that financial security and that's where yeah, you're, yeah, listen, that. you're okay. Right. Yep. It's the first step towards financial freedom, but that's what really makes the difference because that's what allows you to cultivate opportunities. That's what yep. allows you to do things that, and otherwise you just wouldn't have time to do. I love yeah. that. So that's awesome. So you reach that, you're helping out. And then how'd the yeah. podcast come about? Yeah. So I, I had been listening to podcasts before that. A couple of real estate ones, like the real estate radio guys was a show I listened to a lot. And then there's a guy named Pat Flynn, smart passive income. I listened to their shows and, uh, liked them. And so I came on, I was like, Josh, we started a podcast and I talked him into it finally. But to go back to the, oh, the visionary thing. So Josh was a visionary. Like Josh was really good at setting the vision and he knew where we wanted to head and he had big ideas and plans for bigger pockets, but he wasn't, he spent 10 years or whatever it was, eight years in his basement as implementer. That didn't fire him up. He just got burned out as implementing. So I came in as implementer. Essentially, I came in like doing stuff. It was like I wrote. I think it was like a hundred blog posts, like guest blog posts for other blogs the first year. Uh, to this oh. day, I think that was one of the biggest reasons Bigger Pockets ended up growing so much. It's again not that I just you know not that I was a great writer, but now we got links back to the site more and more and more, and like it just compounded. So we have hundreds now of blog posts I've written over the last like seven years now, um, uh, pointing to Bigger Pockets. That helped the podcast. Then all these little things that I was able to implement. Like I, I figured out how to launch a podcast. I figured out what mics to use. Um, so I was implementer. So what happened was as the, their second book or the other book, uh, Rocket Fuel, we suddenly had Rocket Fuel where Josh had the visionary. I had the integ integrator. That's the word, right? Integrator. Yes. Like we did, like we launched together um, and it just having the two, those two missing puzzle pieces is what made it, I think. And uh, it yeah, just that's what- went like wildfire from there. It just went well wildfire, yeah. And I mean, again, like, like the podcast, like, I like to think we do a good job and I, I, I'm a big believer in trying to always do whatever I do. I want it to be the best anybody's ever done. Like when I wrote the book on rental property investing, it's like I want the best rental property book ever done. And of course I don't think I actually achieve any of these things, but if you, if I always aim for that, it's like, how do I do a better job than anybody else? How do I do a better job on YouTube videos than anybody else? Then, so we did it. We did, we had a high level podcast, but then having that boost behind it, that was already 10 years of Josh in his basement working. That's what I think made it a number one real estate podcast. And then the the quality just helps it maintain that, I think. So, yeah. Okay. I got a question on this for you. Yeah. You're, are you still writing blog posts, right? And you're, you're doing the podcast. Now yeah. you're still doing your investing. Yes. Right. And yeah. More than ever. Yeah. More than ever. So you really yeah. started to scale up during that time. Yeah. Uh, the first few years, I mean, it was like hundred hour a week with Josh, like head down. I didn't do it. I mean, we did, we bought some small, you know, rentals here and there, but we didn't do, I didn't do a ton. It wasn't until like a year ago that I was like, you know, I got to, like, I, I want to go bigger, not because I have to, like, you know, I, I, I definitely find I could probably never work again another day in my life, but I wanted to. And it was actually, honestly, it was like getting around guys like you when I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. Like I stopped asking the question of like, what do I need to do? Cause once you have that financial security, it's not about what do you need to do? It's what do you want to do? And I would see guys, I'm like, that sounds cool. And the thing that actually more than anything changed how I viewed it is a, a year, a year and a half ago, I went and went to a buddy's house in Nashville and he owns a music studio. So he's a big um, crunch, country and Christian music producer in Nashville and has this great studio. And he traded me a day in his studio in exchange for me speaking at an event he was hosting. 
So this day in his studio was one of the greatest days of my life, not just because I was in a Nashville studio. That was cool. But it was seeing how his team worked. And what I mean by that is like there were like four or five people. They showed up when they wanted. They loved what they were doing. They were doing meaningful work. They were interacting with each other and they were all top of their game. And I remember just thinking like, that is what I want. Like it just felt so right and pure and amazing and like life-giving of like, and like they'd hang out after work and they like, it was just like this true camaraderie of a work. And I'd never seen that. Like everything I've ever done work-wise was there's work and then there's life. And they were just like this mesh. And I was like, I want that. And so I kind of had to work backwards. I'm like, well, what does that look like? Well, I need to grow my business. I need to scale to be able to hire people and be able to work with people. And that's what I'm doing right now. So I'm scaling, trying to get to that level. So. Okay. So I, I, I can't let you go on this one because I think this is really <laughs> sure. important for a lot of people. You talk about this and how you, this was obviously a process that you went to figure out what it was that you really wanted. Now, yeah. a lot of people though, they don't start until they think they know what they really want. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it, how do you juggle that? When, when people are trying to figure out, they're like, I don't know what, if, do I want to do real estate? I don't know. Maybe. Do I want to start yeah. a business? Then eh, maybe. It, and what really means is they just end up keep working at the job yeah. and yep. they keep that separation, right? So they, yep. they have their time and they're working for the weekend, right? Um, how, do, how do you work with that? How do, you, how do people yeah. get over that? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. So in the book Traction, which now I'm like, I'm a Traction fanboy, I guess. But uh, in the book Traction, I was just rereading it yesterday. That's why it's on my top of my mind. They have this great quote in there, and I'll probably butcher it slightly, but it basically says, deciding is more important than what you decide. In other words, like it's more important to make a decision than to make the right decision. And I, when I read that first, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, no, that is. Like leaders make decisions because if you don't, if you're, if you're always an indecision, you're not doing anything. So it's more important just to make decisions. So, and to use a, an, an analogy, a plane takes off from, you know, New York and goes to LA. People think it's like a straight shot. I mean, we had a computer, they know it's that degree. They just take a shot. But in fact, I read the other day that the average plane course corrects over a thousand times in its flight. Like it, it goes and then it, it changes and it changes and it changes and there's wind and there's this and that, like everything. And it's constantly going back and forth. Uh, now, granted, it's all done with computers and electronic, and nobody, you know, the pilot doesn't even have to think about it. But it's constant course correction. So that's oh, wh- that's why I think it's more important. Yeah, just decide, yeah. do something. And and you know, you when you and I were together out here in Maui, you know, a few weeks ago, I made this comment about how most people believe that your like your purpose in life or what you should do or your destiny is somehow already been written and it's out there buried in a field and you got a shovel and you're trying to find it. You're on a beach trying to find this buried treasure somewhere and you don't want to guess wrong. You don't want to dig in the wrong spot because you're wasting time. But I, I'm much bigger believer that yes, there are things I believe in life you're probably destined to do and there are things that you're called to maybe do. But that's like the exception, not the rule. I think you get, you're holding your destiny and you can go put it anywhere you want to. And so I think it's more important to say what, rather than asking the question, what's the right thing for me? It's what would be cool? I really like that question is what would be cool? I couldn't agree more on this. I mean, it's funny because I talk to people and they're like, so, you know, did you always want to invest in self-storage? And I'm like, no, no. Like, who, <laughs> who's like, yeah, self-storage is like really motivating. No, yeah, I, I, know, yeah. I mean, six years ago, I would have never even imagined that I'd be yeah. where, do, where I'm at doing what I am today. And 10 years ago, I mean, never in my wildest dreams would I thought that this would be the course that I've taken. Now, yeah. I absolutely love what I'm doing. And I figured out that it is the course I'm on, but it was the action is how I learned that. Right. And it's doing, deciding and moving forward. I mean, you can't 
obviously you can't figure out what you like to do if you're not doing anything. So yeah. I, I just, yeah. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Just take some action, try it out. See what you like. I mean, I, 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 I always say like, if it wasn't for mobile home parks, I probably would have just chosen self storage too. I'd been like, yeah, that sounds good. Is it the best thing in the world? I don't know. Mobile home parks the best. I don't know. Probably not. There's probably other things that like, you know, it works though. It would be cool. And it's a cool thing. So just do what's cool rather than, and what fits your personality and what, you know, I'm not saying just like <laughs> smoking's cool. Let's go smoke. But like, you know, like <laughs> yeah. something that's like, well, yeah, what fires you up? That sounds fun. Let's do that. Yeah. And then correct course along the way if you need to. And I, I too, I think, and correct me if you're wrong, I think a lot of people have this idea, like, I need to go and do something to change the world. And yeah. it needs to be grandioso, and it needs to be, when actually it's the little things, and most things aren't grandioso, that makes the biggest impact. And yeah. two, you discover things that you like that you would have never in a million years thought that you would have liked. I mean, I used to yeah. want to be a forester and work counting trees in the mountains of Idaho. Like, that was literally oh. what I thought I would do, right? Um, couldn't have ever been farther off uh, <laughs> from that and learned very quickly that that's uh, not what I wanted to do. But you don't need to be set. I, I love that analogy, once again, of the plane redirecting constantly. Yeah, cor- course correcting all the time. No, that's yeah. great. So now you're doing mobile home parks, but you've you've done yeah. single family apartments, right? Why yep. mobile home parks? Why have you made this move into mobile home parks? Yeah, I mean the the first reason why I chose mobile home parks was honestly because I got so tired of dealing with contractors. Like I just don't like contractors very much, and uh, I was like, you know, if I owned a mobile home park. Uh, and the tenants all in their own home, I wouldn't have to deal with as many contractors because they're going to, when there's a problem, they fix their own thing. So basically, if I want to make that more sound more fancy, the most expensive things about owning rental properties, not the most expensive, the most variable things, uh, unpredictable things are typically repairs and maintenance and capital expenditures. Uh, and also probably some vacancy in there. Like they go up and down quite a bit, especially repairs and maintenance, you just never know. Like you can you can get an idea of how much the water bill is gonna be when you're analyzing a deal ahead of time. You can get an idea of how much a lot of things are gonna be, how much the taxes are gonna be, how much the insurance is gonna be, how much is repair is going to be, or how often do you have to replace the carpet? That's hard to know, that's future prediction stuff. So mobile home parks tend to eliminate a lot of that. Uh, so unlike, you know, unlike like multifamily, which again, that's nothing wrong with multifamily, but it just, there's not as much vacancy because people own their own homes, at least in the, the style that I wanna buy in. They own their own homes. They do their own repairs and maintenance. So all I have to do is maintain roads and, you know, signs and stuff like that. So it's a lot more stabilized expenses. So then therefore more stabilized income, more stabilized cash flow. Uh, I also like to say they're recession resistant, meaning when the market, we, we hit a recession, what happens is people that live at the $3,000 a month rentals, you know, like a nice, uh, you know, posh apartment, they move down to the 2000, the 2000 moved to the 1500, the 1500 moved to the thousand and it compresses from the top down, not necessarily like the two guy paying $220 a month in lot rent and he owns his own home. Like he's not something going to drop to negative 300. I'm not paying him to live on my property, right? There's not much room to go. So lot rent is already affordable at like at, you know, welfare level. And so I don't have to worry about the rents dropping dramatically. Plus they live in their home and they can't really move very easily. It's too expensive to move a mobile home for most people. So they just stay there anyway. So again, recession resistant that when the market goes down, we're probably fine. There's also a huge problem with low income housing in America today, a huge problem. And it's going, it's only growing. Like if you look at the data, I was reading this thing from Harvard the other day, the Harvard put up this study of uh, back in like 17, but it was uh, like the national housing, whatever. And it was like a hundred page report. Anyway, in there, they're basically showing that almost entirely every new construction project being built today for, for housing is at the high end of the market. There's almost nothing at the low end of the market, but at the same time, the low end of the market the lower income is growing at a faster rate than the higher end. 
which means there's this disparity now that's only getting worse. There's more and more people who need low-income housing, and there's less and less of it coming around. So that feels pretty good as well, like long term. I mean, you look at okay. I'm in the Northwest, you know, Idaho. We've got properties Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and like Nevada and Reno. Yep. In almost all our markets, there's it's not a problem. It's a crisis. The cities yep. have labeled this as a crisis. People don't know where to go. Housing yeah. is completely unaffordable for not a segment of the market, but a huge portion of the market. I mean, you live in a place like Idaho. We're the second lowest income in the nation outside Mississippi, really? which used to be fine because our affordability is off the charts, right? Our housing has got, I mean, my house that I bought just four years ago at 400000 is now $1.2 million. No. And you're like, how wow. how can people afford that? How yeah. can, I mean, yeah. it just it's it's gone nuts. It's gone crazy, and so now you have all these people. And dude, these are areas where people are moving because they're getting pushed out of markets like California, right, where they can't afford to live. Yet they have nowhere to rent. They have nowhere. No, it's a it's a huge problem. But two, yeah. also correct me if I'm wrong, because you were telling me this. Yeah. But mobile homes are actually the mobile home parks. They're decreasing. They're not yes. increasing. Yep, they're actually getting rid of, I think I heard 1% per year of all mobile home parks are disappearing. They're getting rezoned. People are, you know, they're, they're dying. Like uh, they want to put in a Kmart instead or a Walmart, Walmart instead or whatever. You know, like they're getting rid of mobile homes all over, mobile home parks all around the country, which gives me hope as well. So as they, first of all, demand is going to continue to climb because there is a, I think it's 6% of all Americans live in a mobile home right now. So like there is a sizable population. I mean, wow. millions and millions of people. Yeah, That's live in mobile homes. That's almost as many people as use self-storage. That's huge. Oh, really? Yeah. That's huge. It's right, yeah. it's right around like 9%. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. So. There's a lot of people out there. So like if these people are people who were raised in mobile homes, sometimes they live there. That's what they know. That's what they like. That's what they, you know, like that's just life for them. Right. And there's a decreased supply. Demand goes up. And so I believe long-term that's going to be a good thing. But actually my favorite thing of all above, above everything with mobile home parks is that you can add NOI without spending any money. Let me explain what, what I mean by that. Unlike, let's say you have an apartment complex, you can raise rent and that increases your net operating income a little bit, which is good. But rent is very much market dependent and it can go up and down a lot. And it's uh, it, it's just like you might, you might be tapped out. That's all you can really do in an apartment. You can decrease some expenses and you can increase. And there's nothing wrong with that. But with a mobile home park where I think the beauty of it is your ability to you buy it, like I'm buying a park right now. It's like 130 lots or something like that. And it's only got like 100 that are filled in this park. It's in uh, Chester, Illinois. There's like 100 that are actually you know, filled. There's like 30 that are empty. We're buying it at a nine cap on existing current homes that are in that thing, which means every home that gets brought into that park, every home that gets brought in is just instantly adding to my NOI. Now, some people say, well, what don't you have to pay for the home to get in? Well, yes and no. If I were to go buy a home, move it onto the lot and then sell it to a tenant or rent it to a tenant. I don't want to rent it. I want to sell it to a tenant. Yes, I'd have to pay for the home. But what we're doing in our model is we're then going to sell that note off to another investor. So they get the note of the home, we get lot rent. So in other words, every home we bring on, we basically just shift the note over to a, another investor and we just get lot rent. So every time we bring in a new home, it doesn't cost us any money out of pocket. And we just add $300 lot rent or whatever it is. Uh, every single month to our bottom line. No additional expenses, nothing out of pocket. I mean, we get it paid back if we sell the note and just increase NOI. So you, you can take these parks that are 60% full 
get them to 90% full, and you literally have increased the value of the park by 30 or 40%, sometimes more. Okay, uh, uh, hold on. You got to put this into perspective because sure, for yeah. those of you that are just looking into starting out in the real estate world, yeah, this is a complex strategy. But, but but still though, hold on. Okay, let's just start off. You're buying at a nine cap, sure. right? Yeah. I can't buy a dumpy storage facility yeah. for yeah. over a seven cap right now. And yeah. two, also, meanwhile, it's important to know they are building storage facilities on every single corner in America. Yep. So you're buying crap at the highest yep. price ever, which you've yep. got to put in another 500000 So you're all of a sudden at zero cap or whatever it is, competing <laughs> with the newest yep. facility in town, right? And this is the same with apartment buildings. Apartment buildings right now, you're in the four or five yeah. caps for crap, and yep. they're building everywhere. So all of a sudden, we have this massive increase in supply, yep. and the price that you're buying at is not only completely uncompetitive, but if you're modeling that out on a risk base, so if I'm underwriting these assets, right? Well, I'm underwriting these at not, I'm not, it's not like I'm going to go, oh yeah, we're going to get a 6% increase year over year. No, in fact, it's probably going to be the opposite because when those two big projects get down, there's going to yeah. be a rise in vacancy. So your net operating that you're projecting is only going to go up if you put significant amount of capital and to do, which we do, we put massive when we come in to redo this because we have to compete. So yep. you're already starting out at a nine cap. And yeah. And it's cash flowing from day one. Like from day one, there's just cash flows. And this so, is why um, you've, and this is why you've convinced me on this. And why yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, there's definitely some huge value. Now the hard part, I mean, like the, the hard part about, I guess, going, adding the units in, like I can sell the notes off because I'm in a unique position here where, where millions of people know who I am. And I, there's a lot of people, imagine you are a new investor. You're excited about real estate and you want to invest, but you're not a credit investor. You can't just go dump into a fund. Like you are, you have 15 grand, you have 20 grand tops. You can't just go and, you know, maybe you could buy one single family house in a cheap area. But what I can offer people is yeah, for 15 grand, that'll get you a mobile home that we will guarantee. And I don't know what that guarantee is going to look like. You're still building the system out, but basically we find a tenant. It's almost like turnkey combining turnkey with wholesaling. And, uh, we find the home, we place it, we rent it, we, we sell it to a tenant. The tenant's paying 8% interest, let's say on their home over a five year span. So the tenant now pays, let's call it 20 grand for their home at eight, at eight or 9% interest. They're paying that entire payment just goes directly to this person. I told the note to, but I get lot rent. So the tenant is paying both lot rent and uh, a home payment for their home. And after five years, it's paid off. Now this investor who comes in that is brand new, they get their feet wet. They get to experience the joy of owning real estate. And I'm there to back them up. If anything goes wrong, I'll buy the note back from them. And I'll, you know, take care of the problem and resell it to somebody else or give it back to the person who bought it. Do you know what I mean? So, like, so it's you a, basically it's a, get all the advantages of real estate without the downside. That's what you're saying. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> much how that works. So, I mean, uh, that's crazy. I think it's phenomenal. Yeah, I think it's a phenomenal strategy. And I've almost been like hesitant to talk too much about it. Like, in fact, this is the first like full podcast I've ever actually explained the whole strategy of what we're doing. Because like, I don't want everybody else in the world knowing necessarily that like, like that's a, that's a thing. And if this works the way I think it, and we've already done it now in Maine, we did it in Bangor, Maine. We've almost doubled the value of what we product, bought our mobile home park for there. Okay. Walk through that deal. Walks through that deal. Yeah. So we bought it for 1.1 1. 1, uh, and we, so 1.1 1. 1 million, uh, we put in, I don't know, I think we maybe spent a hundred grand total, which we just started this new model of selling off notes. Most of that hundred grand almost entirely just went to bring in homes. And when we bought it, there were 42 homes on the property, but there were 11 vacant of those. So there was actually only, what's that? 31, I think it was yeah. 31 actual homes that were being sold. 
So it basically from day one, it was like, it was like break even basically, but we had 11 homes. So we went through one by one by one and we fixed up all 11 and then sold each one off to a tenant. So fixed it up, sold it off, fixed what, it up. Now, what luckily, was your revenue before you started doing this? It's uh, a good question. So I don't actually know. Uh, if I had to guess, we're at like 220 or we were at 250, I think lot rent. So if you take 250 lot rent times 31, we didn't have many notes. So that's 7,700 a month. Okay. So we're probably somewhere around 100, roughly 100 grand a year okay. in in income that was coming in. And then expenses, I don't even know. I'd have to like guess, but yeah. it was basically a break even at the beginning. Yeah. But then every home we then fixed up and sold was now... One, we're actually, we actually did our own money to, you know, fix them up and then sold them off. So now we're getting lot rent for those and we're getting the option payment. Like people are paying it like for a basically a lease option or seller financed. I think I can't remember the exact terminology in Maine. Every state's a little different for how you can sell a mobile home because they're actually not considered homes. They're actually considered personal property. Interesting. Oh, so they have a little bit different rules. Yeah, they're, they're known as personal property. So they actually work more with DMV title stuff than they do with home stuff. And that's why you get the advantages like we do on evictions and everything in storage. Okay, that yeah. makes that makes sense because I was wondering, I'm like, how do you, okay. Yeah, All right. there's still some, there's some stuff like some of it comes down to like, a, I've heard, I've heard, we haven't dealt with a lot of it. Some of it comes down to a judge. Like if a judge says, I know technically this is personal property, but it's a home. So we're going to treat it like that. And that does happen. So like, okay. we still try to follow like general, like, the rules, like we still follow fair housing rules and we still follow an eviction process okay. when we had to evict people. Uh, but it, it is technically personal property in most states. And again, every state's a little different how they view a mobile home. But anyway, so yeah, we um, we got these units rented out, uh, you know, or sold off each one. So now they added to our NOI significantly yeah. uh, because now we're getting op- both, both getting lot rent and we're getting these, this note payment because we sold the note for these homes to these tenants. And so now they're paying us $300 a month for their home and $300 a month for lot rent. We've increased rent from, I think, yeah, 240, 250. I think we're at 325 now for lot rent. So we've bumped rent up quite a bit, yeah. which from a percentage, that's another thing I love about mobile home parks, from a percentage, going from 240 to 325 is huge. You, like that's like, I don't know what that percentage is, but it gotta be 25% or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. Try raising rent in an apartment 25%, you're gonna have just, you yeah. know, anarchy. Absolutely. But from a dollar point, it's not that much. I mean, we raised the rent, you know, 65, $75, yeah. whatever. It was like, oh, okay, well that's doable if it's under market rent, nobody left because of it. Yeah. Now granted, there are some investors out there, mobile home park investors who have landed on like the front page of newspapers because they jack people's rent from, oh, you're paying 200, you're now at 400. And so like, I mean, imagine that headline, you know, do, you know, idiot investor jacks rent by a hundred percent or 200%. Like, I I don't want to be on the front page of newspaper. We try to raise rent fairly slowly. Now, now tell me, I want to talk to you a little about this because we've had conversations there. There has been some people in this industry that have been gotten a very bad rep. And and, in fact, we were both talking that we had seen the late night show. John Oliver. Yeah. John John Oliver had a huge segment on it and he just ripped that guy yeah. shreds. I mean, and uh, like what happened there and how, how do you, yeah. cause I know there's a lot of people in, that have thought about going into mobile home parks, but they see yeah. that kind of stuff and they're like, Oh, maybe yeah. I don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what basically what it was, and you guys can look it up. If you want to John Oliver, uh, look on YouTube, John Oliver's mobile home park segment. And he, a lot of what he said was true. A lot of what he said was cherry picked. Like, you know, he grabbed, like, for example, he had one of his people go to this guy. Frank Ralph was the guy. He's one of the largest operators in the country. He has a seminar. He had his people like go undercover to a seminar and they find like the one line that he says, or they go back to all his material. So Frank Ralph has a course. So they go through all of his material and they find some random phrase that he said 
that was stupid that he probably shouldn't have said, but he did it to a room of investors. So like, I think his line was something like, Mobile home parks are great because it's like the tenants are chained to their, it's like being chained to a Waffle House. They can't leave. Like that's a rough line to say, especially to when other people hear that. Like it's a, yeah. it's a rough thing. So I feel bad for Frank Rolf. He shouldn't have said stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's probably was taken out of context. Maybe even I didn't watch the whole thing. That said, nothing in there was ever said that he was doing anything illegal. He, they never said he was doing anything even necessarily unethical. It's just like, the way you spin that is like, there's these rich investors like that are buying these parks and then making a big return and shame on capitalism yeah. is, was basically that's, a good, that's what I got out of it. Yeah. yeah. It was like shame on, I bet you that segment did more for Frank Rolf in growing his business and his courses and his thing. than it hurt him. <laughs> You're probably right. He probably had like a thousand investors call yeah. him that yep. night. I want to like, put hey, money with second. you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like, <laughs> You, you, you're saying they're like, you know, they're, they, they don't you move. You jacked their, it up can't. 50%. Nobody left. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's, <laughs> it's funny. Like you can spin things to be whatever you want. Uh, I would prefer not to be on the John Oliver show. Cause I am a high eye in the disc profile. So I like people liking me. Uh, Frank Roth, we even asked him about, it. he's just like, yeah, whatever. Like I thought <laughs> he's a funny comedian. Like that's what he is. Like, so like, yeah, I don't know. It was a, I think there's an ethical way to do it. And I think there's a way to do it. It's a lot of, it's a hard issue almost more than it is. It's like how you approach it. Like if you approach these tenants, like, Oh, who cares? Let them go. I don't care. I don't even want them. Somebody to take the sound clip now for me and say that I'm saying this, but like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, who cares? They're just low income tenants, throw them out. Like we'll just raise the rent and we'll get new people in there. Like that's just an attitude thing. Yeah. Right. But if it's like, Hey, we want to buy this park and we want to provide a safe environment and we want people who are going to hurt other people. We don't want them in our park. Yeah. And we want people who are going to destroy the, the quality of our park and make it worse for the kids in the neighborhood. We don't want them at our park. And so what we're doing is we're, we're improving these parks, the way that these people live, we're providing better customer service, we're repaving roads, we're increasing the lighting so it's safer, we're kicking out the riffraff. And that's the value we're adding. And for that, yeah, we have to get paid something or else that we, we couldn't do it. So yeah, rent is going to increase a little bit. We're not jacking anyone's rent 200%. We're increase rent a little bit. And it, again, it's it's the same message, really. Yeah. Just what somebody's going to hear that as we're just kicking people out. And the other person's going to say, you know, we're doing this methodically and carefully and respectfully to our tenants because they are the lifeblood of this business. Like we respect them and we want to honor them, but we also need to make a profit because this is a business. So, you know, one of the things that we, we had, we had a tenant that had gone 10 years without getting a rate increase and okay. we, uh, wasn't us. We didn't, we bought it, yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> but, um, we purchased it <laughs> and they got a rate increase and they came in and the rate increase was nominal. It wasn't crazy, yeah. right? In fact, it was like six bucks. Yep. And they came in and had it out. They went online. Yeah. They did Google videos or YouTube videos and did Google reviews telling yeah. how horrible we were because in 10 years, they hadn't got a rate increase. They yep. didn't leave. But, you know, they were mad. And um, so one of the things we found is we actually had to had to train our tenants because if we said every six to nine months, if we gave a small rate increase, it could add up to a huge increase. But yeah. No one will say anything. In fact, they're totally fine with it. But if we went extended periods of time without giving rate increase and then yep. we gave them one, no matter yep. the size of it. They all, everyone freaked out and it was taken completely out of 
proportion. Yeah. And I think about that a lot with the value add system. And I don't know, maybe he was doing it or maybe not. He may have bought something that was so far under market. That's exactly right? what it is. Yeah. Yep. And then he increased it just to market rate. And everybody loses their mind and says, you're you're screwing these people. And you're like, what are you talking about? For years, they basically got a 30% yep. discount. Yep. That's exactly what it is. Another buddy of mine is a mobile home park investor and he bought a property in, I think it was upstate New York. And he, I think, I, th- I can't remember the exact numbers, but basically it was like lot rent had not been raised in 20 years. They were paying like 150 bucks for lot rent. And every other park, in, and this was a really nice park. It was the nicest park in his whole portfolio. It has a bunch of them, he has dozens. He's like, this is the nicest park. They were paying stupid low rates, like 150 or $200 for rent. Every other park in the area, and there's lots of them, were all like five or $600. So they come in, they bought this park. They increased rent to like 300 and they were literally in the New York times. They had a, they had a feature done them on, on, on like the today show. They had reporters outside their house bombing them because they increased rent by 200% or whatever. Like, yeah. And he's like, no, he's like, we literally are half the price of the person across the street. Like we're not, but it's because it, it's, it was a, a percentage jump to all yep. these tenants that live there. So they don't care that it hasn't been raised in 10, 15, yeah. 20 years. Yeah. And so, yeah, that tip, just write that. Everyone listen to if you own rental properties. Yeah, don't like if you think you're doing a, your tenants a favor by not raising rent, you yep. know, every year, you're not. You're actually hurting them because it's going to drive them nuts and they're going to move and they're going to destroy their life when you do it on a big chunk five years from now. Exactly. So ra- little raises. Yeah, we're going to do the same thing. We have like 10 or $15 per year yep. raises projected for all of our mobile home parks because. We're just doing it over time. We don't want to surprise anybody. And two, when you're dealing with, so when you get into bigger mobile home parks, whether it's mobile home parks, apartment building, uh, storage, you really need to have systems in place to deal because you're yeah. dealing with mass amounts of people, yes. right? So, you know, yeah. when we buy or build a storage facility and there's a thousand tenants in that one building, when we increase their rate at 6% and you have 10% of the people that are ticked off, that's a hundred yep. people screaming, <laughs> So yeah. you really got to approach it right and realize, like you said, the message is big time. So when we do those things, another uh, thing that we do is we line it up with, it, this is a value add for our tenants. So we come in and say, we've now increased the security. We've done all of these things to make sure your products are safer, whatever it may be. So it's yep. not just simply I'm ra- raising it and this is a shock to the system. We're providing value for it because yeah, the, it, the backlash can be swift and brutal. Yeah, it definitely. That's a really good point too. Yeah, and what you said about systems, that's so important. Like we brought in an asset manager, Brian Murray, who you know uh, was out here in Maui. Oh, yeah, man. Brian is our is our asset manager. And he's just going to make sure that these things, because, and I, I needed somebody like super experienced to run that part because I knew the systems are what's going to matter more than anything. I can buy a mobile home park all day long and on paper, it's going to look great. And he, and had, a, buy he had a property management company, didn't he? He does. Yeah. yeah he yeah. owns his own yeah. property management company, owns a couple thousand units. Like mm-hmm. I needed somebody that could come in with that system and he just is going to run that system and make it work. So yeah, it's the, the systems are what matter more than anything because especially like you meant, like we we're talking about the benefits of mobile home parks and you mentioned the second ago, how like some rent hasn't been raised in 10 years. It's because many mobile home parks. In fact, the most of them are owned by mom and pop owners still. And they feel, they know like they, most of them or a lot of them live on the property. So like, it's not just that they don't want to raise rent, but they don't want to raise rent on their neighbor and their friend and the, you know, Cletus who they've rented to for the last 15 years. Like, yeah. So that's why everyone's under rent is because these mom and pop owners. And so that also means when people don't write, pay rent on time, they're like, ah, don't worry about it because they're, they're not, they don't have the systems and processes down. So when we come in, like we have to establish these right away. Uh, these systems and processes, because right now the tenants are probably not trained very well. So we need to make sure we train them correctly, starting from day one, 
to like, you know, they have responsibilities, we have responsibilities and we get them all on that same page. Now, you, you talked about something that's really important. It's one of the reasons that um, we got into our industry and one of the reasons that I'm looking very much into mobile home park. Well, you're the reason, but um, and one of the major yeah. reasons that I, I like this industry because of the fact that there's a huge segment that are owned by mom and pops. So for us, that means there's opportunity. Whereas I look into maybe uh, multifamily housing, it's complete inverse from, let's say, self-storage or mobile, ham- uh, mobile family where 80% of the market's institutionalized. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where mobile home park, though, it's not right. And a lot of these in middle America and everything outside the Sun Belt, particularly, yep. these are just owned by single operators, right? Yeah, exactly. A lot of them are single operators. A lot of them we're finding is a lot of them is my mom and dad have owned this park in the lot for the last 40 years. They're now on a retirement home or they now passed away. Now I own this. And so now we got a lot of operators that are 40 year old, you know, men and women who their parents, it was their park and now they just inherited it. And so we're, we're actually finding an increasing number of that is because the mobile home parks really came into the, into like, you know, high fashion back in like the fifties, sixties and seventies. And so all the people that were building them back then, well, that was 50 years ago, you know, 50, 60 years ago. So all those people are now retiring and dying, leaving the things to the kids. Kids don't have any interest in owning them. Yeah. And they just like want to get some money out. And so that also opens up a lot of opportunity for things like seller financing. Because, yeah, you know, the person could sell it fat square out, but they could also finance it and make thousands of dollars a month. That first property I bought in Maine, that first mobile home park, seller financing. We bought it for 1.1. The guy just carried the contract on it. And uh, yeah, today it's worth, I think, 1.8, 1.9. How much do you have to put down? Uh, we, we were going to put 20% down, but at the end, when we got in there, there were more units that needed more work than we thought, like, you know, a few days before closing when we did our final walkthrough. And so we ended up negotiating a little bit of a, uh, I think it was a hundred grand credit, which was basically like 10%. So I think total down, we put 11% down. Uh, and then I raised most of that just from a friend and he carried the rest. Yeah. So it, that's it, awesome. And actually, I'm, I'm glad we got that credit at closing. I mean, the funny thing is when you get a credit at closing from a seller finance deal, really just means like we just brought less money to the table. Uh, but because I was, I had raised the money from uh, a couple of the, we have three people in the partnership and we all put a little money in. We actually over raised then because we had a, basically an extra hundred grand. And it's a good thing we did because we spent that money fixing up those units because they needed a lot of, that was probably the most surprising thing. It's like, I feel like you get these homes, it's like, oh, it's a couple thousand dollars, paint and carpet, get them in there. But almost every home took at least 10 grand between the furnaces, between the getting the, the city to sign off. Every city has their own rules. That's another huge problem with mobile home parks is every city has their own rules. And generally the rules are, we hate mobile home parks. So we're going to make these as strict as possible so that you'll leave. Like that's what a lot of uh, cities, yeah. uh, they have these rules, just weird rules and, and things that are, are tougher on mobile home parks because they just don't want them in their area. Uh, even though, even though they're all screaming about low income housing, yeah, they, they still don't want mobile home parks. And the reason I've Frank was what Frank Rolf says is because if you look at those areas, the number of kids that live in a mobile home park is pretty high, like kid per square foot or whatever is, is a really high ratio. Yet the taxes from a mobile home park are the lowest you're getting in the entire area. And what's the highest use of taxes in an economy? It's schools. So in other words, mobile home parks use the highest percentage of schools and contribute the lowest amount of tax revenue to the government for those schools. So government would rather have everyone in a single family house paying higher taxes to help support the schools. Anyway, that's his his reasoning and why the governments hate them. But I think it's also just they're a blight on a lot of towns. They just have a lot of crime if you don't manage them well. And so uh, they don't you, like them. What do you do to avert those inherent problems in your mobile home park like what are yeah. what are you how do you how do you be proactive about that 
Yeah, I, I think it's a, you create a culture, just like in a business, you have a culture in a business, you have a culture in a mobile home park and the culture, either you let the tenants define the culture or you define the culture. Same thing with an apartment, you either define the culture or your tenant defines the culture. So parks that are bad are generally because the, the park owner has let the culture be created by the strong personalities within the park. So it's the same answer as I'd give to an apartment complex by good management, by rules, by being strict, Hey, you got that car without any, you know, you, you have that car jacked up on jack stands. You got 24 hours with that. That's it. We have a rule 24 hours. If it's on a jack stand for more than that, we haul it out of there, right? Like little things like that, like create the culture of this is like, I mean, we went to one park, we toured in Illinois and man, like we, we didn't get out of the car. We, I, I refused to even get out of the car when we were driving around that park. Cause I was like the cult, like, and I couldn't even explain what it was. Like I, today I couldn't tell you one thing that just made it scary, but I was like, this is a scary culture. I don't want to be here. I don't feel right. And the three guys I was with in the car, two other guys, we were all like, uh, uh-uh, no chance. And, uh, it's a culture thing. So we want, so we want a culture where people are respectful and nice and they follow the rules. And if not, we boot them out. Cause that's Dude, the there's kind of a huge difference. I, I, I've been yeah. to plenty of mobile home parks that they don't even, I, like, it's hard to even call them mobile home parks. They're just, yeah housing right yeah you know i mean you're just yeah. in there you meet with people and you got yep. their pets it's 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 an awesome place to even live they've got yeah. you know all these little parks in the middle where kids are playing yep. and then you go to others and it's like wow yeah this wow. is yeah. sketchy yep so that's why the most important thing is like the systems and the management. That's why, again, that's why I needed an asset manager. I mean, I feel like I'm good at managing. Ryan Murdoch was one of my partners. He was a property manager for years. He's good at it. Like my wife and I wrote the book on managing still. Like I knew like I needed to bring in somebody. So that's why Brian's doing it is like, who's just top notch. Cause it all yeah. depends on that. It all yeah. depends on that. That's awesome. So, and where are these located? Are they all, how, how do you go about finding your deals? So you, yeah. you, you got this deal flow. Where do they come from? How do you, how do you find deals? Yeah. Yeah, really, it's the same thing anybody does to find deals. I always say there's a four-step process everybody does. Step one, you have to get leads coming in. The more leads you get in, the more deals you can then, the second step, which is analyze. So you get leads, then you analyze them. The more deals you analyze, the more offers you can make. I call that pursuing because it's not always a formal offer and I don't want to like make people think it's always a formal offer. Sometimes it's a conversation with a seller, but you got to pursue it. You got to go after it. You're never going to get that wife if you don't ask her to marry you, right? Like you got to ask. And then the, if you do those consistently, LAP, leads analysis, pursue, leads analysis, pursue, and you're constantly optimizing each part of that, you're going to get the last and final step, success, LAPS. So for us, it was, okay, how do we get leads? Well, let's do a couple things. One, let's start contacting all the biggest real mobile home brokers, the guys that are doing the business in the mobile home park world. So we asked around, who are they? Found who they were, got on their email list, started having conversations with them, getting them to know who we were, what we wanted, getting very clear. Uh, this is just a tip for anybody. If you're trying to get into real estate, like get really clear on what it is you want, right? Like, Again, you might not know what it is. It doesn't really matter. It's more important to make a decision than to make the right decision. So, hey, we want mobile home parks with 50 units, between 50 and 100 units, and we want them in this population area, and we want this. Because all of a sudden, then the mobile home park brokers start going, oh, yeah, well, let me think on that. And they know you're legit. If you're just like, yeah, I'm looking for a good deal, no one's going to take you seriously because everyone's looking for a good deal. What does that mean? So get very specific. So anyway, we gave our brokers exactly what we wanted to a T, what we were looking for. And again, We've changed that now. Like it's more important to make a decision because now we made a decision that we would want 50 to 100 units. Now, I don't want anything under 100 units. I've decided that. Like I've looked at 50 to 100. We're buying a few. They're fine, but they're going to be more work than the ones that are 100 or 200 units. In fact, probably when I buy 150 unit, 200 unit, I'll probably be like, oh, I don't want anything less than 300 units. You know, so like we're going to learn along the way, but you never learn if you don't go along the way, right? Yeah. Uh, Okay, I I got two quick questions for you. Go ahead. So I'm obsessed with like 
opportunity. And I believe like creating an ecosystem of opportunity, yep. which it naturally comes up and it thrives, right? And it grows everything like that. We talk about making these goals and you specifically talked about identifying what you want. I always think there's a strange correlation with is what you want driven by the opportunity that you have, or are you creating the opportunity by what you want? Does that make sense? It, it does. And, and I don't know that there's yeah. an answer because yeah. I'm just I hearing you speak. Both, I'm like, but, yeah. you know, is, are you actively, cre- I mean, you're kind of doing both at the same time, right? But did you get yeah. into this space because you saw opportunity and you met the right people and then you decided that that's where you wanted to go? Or was it a pre like define, you said, no, I want to go down this road. And then you cultivated opportunity. Cause I think a lot of people really don't understand. They don't understand how to get to that point of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's uh, I think, I think definitely you're right. It is both. It's all those things. Uh, I think that the more clarity you have on where you're going, the more everybody else gets around you and wants to support your vision. I found that to be true my entire life. Like your vivid uh, vision. Yeah, like my vivid vision. Like the reason I have like this big poster of exactly where I'm heading in the next three years because it gets people fired up and it gets me fired up. And I'm like, I know exactly. In fact, as soon as we get off this call today, we rented a, um, uh, a uh, conference room downtown Kihei, Hawaii here. And me and Ryan and my guy Mike, who's on the team, and then Brian and Lance are calling in and my buddy Greg is coming. And we're just doing like a big powwow. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to read that vision again and get everyone lined up on the vision. This is where we're headed. And once you have kind of a clear vision, people want to, and whether or not it's the universe wants to conspire to help you, I've heard that phrase before, or whether it's just your own will or you know, just the energy that you create around you, it tends to just amplify it. So like my goal was to get, my goal was to buy one park this year, just one park this year. And I'm currently on a contract for eight of them and I'll probably close on five of them. So like just by, because once you get all those things aligned and work in the right direction, I think that the opportunity just arises through that, but it wouldn't have done it if I wouldn't have taken off on the plane to go back to the course correction, like you'll course correct and you'll get somewhere, but you got to take off. And so you have to just do something first and get that momentum going. So I'm not sure if that answers that question, but yeah. No, 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 it does. And I, and I love those, for those of you that haven't heard when we were down there in Hawaii, you kind of walked me through that, uh, vivid vision and explain real quick why that's different than a regular goal. Cause I think not sure. only is it different, I think it makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I'm such a big believer in this. It came from a book called The Vivid Vision by Cameron Harold. And he basically makes the point that you, you might have an idea of where you're headed in your business, but why not paint it vividly and three-dimensional so everyone can see it? And I'm, I'm not mean literally painting though. Some people could. The idea is you take like, again, not necessarily what you know, what's the right thing for me, but what would be great? So I worked backwards and I sat on a plane ride. I did this on like a six hour plane ride from the mainland to Hawaii. And I just wrote everything that I thought would be great to have in, in, in my business. Like, here's how many employees we have. Here's what the media thinks about us. Here's what, uh, I have a New York Times bestseller, which helps us raise money. I mentioned in there that we do these mastermind groups in Hawaii a couple times a year. And that helps me build networking and connect with people. And so I did all these things that were like, what would be cool? And I put it into a and there's different ways to do it. I have a buddy who did a vivid vision and he made it like a trifold pamphlet about his company. And it's always written in the present, but in the three years in the future. So like open door capital is blah, 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 even though that's, it's a future document. So I decided I would write mine from the perspective of a newspaper article. I really like that idea a lot is let's say the New York times came out and did an article on me. So it even begins with like, 
Maui, Hawaii, December 31st, 2021. You know, Opener Capital is an investment firm unlike any you've ever seen. The founders were in, you know, board shorts and tattoos and blah, blah. It goes through this almost like written like a newspaper would write an article and how great this company is. And, you know, we, we go twice a year. We do humanitarian. We do one humanitarian like outreach uh, like event with the whole team, completely company paid once a year. We also do one just fun adventure trip once a year. We don't do that right now, but that sounds cool, doesn't it? Like go like serve kids and like under, you know, like in poor areas. But then also, hey, we're also going to do a trip. We're going to go to Cabo and just have a great time water skiing. So uh, the vivid vision lines up like what you kind of have in your head and puts it into a 3D form that you could be like, that's it. And what it also does, it gets everybody around you going, oh, now I get what you're doing. So employees, spouses, family, friends. And it gets people pumped up. Potential employees, like you show a prospective like employee. Yeah, this, this is where we're headed. It's not like some cheesy, you know, mission statement on the wall that says like, we are going to be the number one real estate company in this town. Nothing wrong with that, but it's hard for people to get fired up about that. But when they read a three-dimensional picture in a, in a vision, people get behind that stuff. And I found just tremendous amount of energy anytime I bring that thing out. I, I think too, when, you know, when I was reading it and going through it, I was like the clarity on that, like the process of going through the clarity also, I think brings to light what needs to be done. Yes. Who you yes. need and what needs to happen in a yeah. way that you're saying, oh, I want to make a million dollars a year does nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like it's a number. It's a yeah. number. It means nothing. It shows you nothing. But your vivid vision, I mean, it's huge. It's, you yeah. know, yeah, very it's detailed. Like literally big too. Like yes. literally I printed out of like a four <laughs> foot by three foot poster, like an acrylic poster, <laughs> which you get from Costco. Yeah. Like if you have a cool like poster idea, yeah. Costco has them for like 125 bucks. That's all that cost me. So anyway, kind of cool idea. And all your team can see it. You can see it every day. And it helps you, I think, identify. You talked about the plane and you talked about pivoting. Now, you may pivot, but you're still going to L.A. Yeah. Yeah. We're still headed there. We might find little ways and I may I may, uh, you know, adjust a little bit along the way. But generally speaking, that's where we're headed. And what's other cool other cool thing, too, is because it's printed on like an acrylic, like basically glass looking thing. uh, We can just take like magic markers, like erasable markers or highlighters and highlight stuff that we have that we've finished. We haven't started doing that today, but I think today I'm going to pull that out when we do our little powwow here in the next hour. And like, hey, we're already doing this. Like, this is going awesome. This is great. Like cross that off, check that off. And so it, it helps you know, like where you're going. Cause one, it's like the Cheshire cat on Alice in Wonderland, you know, Alice meets the Cheshire cat and says, uh, she asked the cat, which way should I go? And he says, well, where are you trying to get to? And she goes, well, I, I don't know. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter which way you go, but like, it does matter which way we go because we do want to go somewhere, right? Most people have a vision somewhere, whether or not you've defined it or not. You have an idea that you want more time with your kids. You want more time with your your wife or your husband. You want to travel Europe for six months. Like, what would be cool? And once you have that, you know where you're going, then you can ask the Cheshire Cat and he'll tell you exactly how to get there. Uh, but it, it's until you identify where you're headed, you're just spinning in circles and wandering around woods without a compass. So, too, but I, I don't think helpful. a lot of people understand that they literally have the control to make. I don't yeah. think people do it because I don't think they even fully get that me making this vision of this life there's no point to because i can't do it right yep. so no one actually sits down even though they may daydream or something but nobody yep. plans out a life that they want to live like no yeah. one says these are all the things that i want these are things that i do because i think they fundamentally don't believe that they can achieve it which could not be farther from the truth obviously i mean yours is a perfect example and it you can't obviously get there if you don't know where you're going, but too, if you're not cultivating the opportunities to get there. So I too, yeah. I, I just love this idea of this vivid vision. It gives you 
the mark on the map. It puts everybody on the same page. Clarity, it puts focus and allows you to start cultivating the opportunities to get there. I mean, like yeah. you said, you'd planned on one, one mobile home yeah. park. You yeah, exactly. Contract. I mean, yeah, that's I crazy. Yeah. Yeah, because once you have clarity and you know what you're doing, like things come together as much faster. People don't lack the ability to get things done. People lack the clarity to know what they even need to do, right? Like like almost anybody, if you really knew what you were going to do, like if you really knew like you signed up for a, a, a marathon, once you have that clarity, you paid money for a marathon, you know the date it's going to be on, you know exactly what you're going to do and you're going to run it just fine. Like most likely, it's not like you're you don't know what to do. It's just like along the way, just people haven't decided they're going to run a marathon. So decide, make a choice today, like, or like, Hey, by, by Friday night at midnight, I'm going to have a clear vision of where my company's headed. And it doesn't matter what it says as long as what matters is that I have something. And that's what I encourage anybody listening right now is just is set that deadline in the next few days. Don't give yourself too much time, but like take it, take an afternoon, go out in nature, take a journal with you and write down like, what would be great? And then decide and then go from there. Were you always like that? Like when you got out of college, were you always planning and I have these big goals no. or these? No. Okay. Not really. I mean, <laughs> yeah, not really. Not really. I think I kind of stumbled in it. But it wasn't until the last few years I've gotten much more heavily into like reading books on like personal development and confidence. I think confidence is so important. I don't, we don't, we don't talk about, about confidence, but like, I was just so unconfident. What's the word? Incompetent? Incompetent? I don't know. I'm not very confident my entire life. It's just kind of like, I, okay, true story. I put this in my book on rental property investing. I was 18 years old. I'm sitting in a Chinese restaurant with my friend, Matt. He was my best friend. And we're talking about what most 18 year old boys talk about, you know, things like girls and what we're going to do for college. And, you know, and he leans over, he looks at me and he says, so Brandon, do you want an extraordinary life or do you want an ordinary life? And I thought about it for a second and I said, you know, like I'm a normal kid, average intelligence, like below average looks <laughs> from the Midwest. You know, like I got, uh, I, I, I'm good with an ordinary life. I just want to be, you know, fine. I want to be able to pay my bills. I want to be able to just have an ordinary life. And as I said those words, I opened up this fortune cookie. Like I literally was opening a fortune cookie and the words that I'm on, the, on that cookie said, there's no such thing as an ordinary life. And it like, I said that I just like stared at it and like my hands like shaking. I was like, how is that even a thing? And I realized like my answer of, and I look back today, my answer of, I just want an average life, an ordinary life was because of my lack of confidence. And because I didn't believe I deserved it. I didn't believe I could do it. I didn't believe that like the cards were dealt in the right way for me where like today I'm like, like you just said, you can do whatever you want. Like our moms were right. Right. You can do whatever you want. If you try like, that's so true. Uh, just people don't believe that. And you got to get that confidence to believe. No, really like that. My mom was right. I can do anything I want. If I wanted it bad enough, I can be precedent. Like if I really want it, I don't, but, and I think changing the attitude, I think opens up the world to opportunities for you. You know, I think it's interesting too, because if you look at most successful people that I know, they were never the jocks in college, right? They yeah. were never the guy that just had this inherent belief that he was awesome and this overwhelming confidence, right? I was definitely not like that. I, I was miserable in school. I was a yep. dyslexic kid that, you know, couldn't even think right. I was, I was just like, I'm just going to go roam around in the mountains by myself and count trees. Right. Yep. You know, so I was like, <laughs> that's it. That's, that's my purpose in life here. But you know, they don't start out like that. And I think that's important for people to 
understand because nobody is. There's I don't I I don't believe that there is such such a thing as somebody that comes and they're just destined for greatness. No, we just yeah. make the choice to go do something. And yep. it, everyone's the exact same. We all have the exact same abilities. We all have weaknesses. We all have problems. And you see these people though later in life, right? Somebody looking at you like, oh, well, of course Brandon Turner's got eight, you know, apartment or not apartment, but uh, mobile home parks under contract. But that's because he's Brandon Turner. Yeah. Not, you know, yeah. I'm not that guy, you know, yeah. it's, but how do you get, how do you get over that? Yeah. I don't even know. I think it's surrounding yourself with other people, which is why this mastermind thing out here was so good. It was like being around guys like that are, are or, you know, ladies, guys, whatever that are like, above where you're at, you naturally rise. It's like a thermostat. Like our confidence is a thermostat that it's set at a certain level. So like it's 72 degrees. And if you get a little too overconfident, it drops back, you know, you get a little hot, it drops back down. You get a little cold, it raises back up a little bit. Our income is the same thing. Our incomes are a thermostat. It's, it's you, you have an internal belief on what, how much money you should make. It's not conscious. It's totally conscious. But the best way to raise your thermostat in anything is to get around other people who have a higher thermostat. So I'm not a runner, but I mean, I, mean, I wasn't a runner until I got around people who ran and did tri- half, half, like Ironmans and half Ironmans. So I got around them and I went and ran and out half Ironman. Like, and it wasn't even that hard. Like, it's just like, I did it because I was around people who had a thermos, higher thermostat. Uh, I was making 60 grand a year for years and years and years, around 50, 60 grand a year. I read this book, uh, The Psychology of Sales by Brian Tracy. And he makes this point that he makes the point about the thermostat. Everyone has a financial thermostat. Then he says, and your thermostat is set by the amount of income your father makes. And I was like, like, that's exactly like my dad was making 50, 60,000 a year. Like, as long as I've known, like, that's where my thermostat, that's what I felt was right. And so my thermostat is set by my, my, the people around me, which was my dad up until, and so like, it wasn't until I got around people like in the, in GoBundance and around others, like all of a sudden, like my income, like 10 X more than 10 X over the last few years. Why? Because I got around people who had that kind of income. Funny story. One of my buddies told me how much money he made. And I was blown away. Like, I was like, you're like 30 years old. How do you make that much money? Like in a given year, I was making 60 grand a year. I'm like, and he's like, oh, I just, you know, do this and this. And he's like totally different niche, not real estate, not anything. But he told me the exact amount he was making that that year. The next year, I made almost to the dollar the same amount that he made. And it was like, just by him telling me that raised my thermostat uh, to that level. And it was crazy. Now I just think like, okay, well, now I'm at this level. Like, who, who can I get around that has even a higher thermostat? Like, not that I need to just continually grow. But anyway, the thermostat thing is, is huge. No, I, I love that. So I... I was in sales and I did like B2B is uh, business sales. Right. And yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was under the same mind kind of, I'm like, well, I'm not that kind of guy. Right. I'm just nope. this dyslexic kid from Idaho. Right. Yeah. And um, so I was like, once I started getting around these business owners though, I realized two things. First of all, in sales, we have a thermostat. Like we used to say when somebody would come in to be a sales guy, we'd be like, you're a 50 grand guy. Or we'd be like, yeah. that's a 350 year, uh, year kind of person. We want him on our team. Right. Or that, yeah. that's a millionaire. That's a million dollar earner. Right. We just yeah. knew in sales there were, yeah. there's these people and they just do what they do. And when I, so I first realized that exact same thing. Income is a thermostat. It's all mental based. The second thing was I got around all these owners, hundreds and hundreds of owners. And some of these guys had, you know, they were running billion dollar companies and other ones were just, you know, floor shop, small, small companies made $200,000 a year. And I was helping all these companies. And the difference between the guys were very, very interesting. And 
there wasn't hardly any. And the small differences, though, made up massive. One was very confined to what they were thinking, and they were stuck at this level, where the other one didn't seem... They were just like, well, how do we do this? How do we get to the next level, right? They were always asking questions. They were always open for growth. And the most important thing, though, that I learned out of that whole entire situation is none of them were any different than me. You go and you meet the guy that's running a billion-dollar company... Well, yep. he's, he's just saying, in fact, most of the time, that guy was less smart than the guy that yes. was doing the $200,000 company. And the fact yeah. that he knew that he wasn't smart led him to also understand that there's no limit to what I can do or make. And it, that yeah, just so blew true. my mind how interesting that was. So, no, I, I absolutely love that. So, yeah. okay. That's we, cool. We've taken up a lot of your time, man. I want to, though, uh, ask you a few questions just to end. Your sure. advice... For somebody starting out saying, all right, we got Brandon Turner here. Well, I want to, I want to be able to have this freedom in my life. I want to become financially free, achieve goals. Or what, what, what do you suggest to those people starting out? Like what are your first steps? So I have a course. It's $37,000. You pay me $37,000. I'm totally kidding. Perfect. Yeah. Um, link a bio. <laughs> yes. Uh, I would say this. Okay. First, first step is like, again, like there's a lot of different areas in real estate, right? So get a good general idea of all the different aspects. Podcasts are great for that. Cause you just hear stories of different people doing different things. Find something that you think sounds cool. Again, not necessarily the best or the number one or the thing that you were destined to do. Just find something that sounds cool and then focus on that. Become the best at that niche. So it could be mobile home parks. It could be vacation rentals. It could be anything. doesn't matter. Could be low end rentals, burr investing, house hacking, doesn't matter. Just pick one thing and dive deep. But you got to get a general idea first. Uh, so get a good general idea. So we actually wrote a book, uh, not to totally self plug, but How to Invest in Real Estate. Josh Dorkin and I wrote this book, How to Invest in Real Estate. And that was the theory behind it was like, let's give people the 40,000 foot level of real estate. So we talk about self storage even in there. I think we talk about self storage. We talk about like mobile home sure. parks. We talk about, yeah, I think, I think we mentioned it. We talk about commercial, residential, and like just get an idea. So go to your library and pick that book up or Barnes and Noble or Amazon or Pirate Up we'll, in we'll it. I don't the, care. Yeah, we'll put the link. Put a link. In. Yeah. Perfect. So yeah, get it. perfect. So get that idea. Then focus, focus, focus. And I always say the number one most important skill an investor can have or at least one of the most important skills of probably the is being able to run the numbers. I think you got it until you can hire someone else smarter than you to run the numbers. That's on you. So never trust an agent, never trust your partner, never trust turnkey provider, never trust your mom. No one can do your numbers, but you. Uh, and so you got to get good at it because at the end of the day, everybody else has an agenda, but your life is your life. So get good at the numbers. And the great thing about real estate is it's very much numbers based. So that's my a few pieces of advice. Awesome. Now the second piece of advice we need is you've talked about starting leveling up. You just went through this big level up in your life where you're like, I'm going to 10X my income. I'm going to get all these things. What would you suggest to the person that's looking to, they're like, okay, I've got a ground base. I'm really looking though to level up and move it, take it up a notch. Ooh, yeah. Uh, I'll repeat it. Yeah, I'll I'll repeat a piece of advice I gave earlier, but let's get around people with a higher thermostat. So the fastest way to, to level up is to get around people who are already leveled up. Uh, it's, it's like a magic potion. Like if you get, if you're overweight and you get around a bunch of people who are super in shape, you will get in shape. Um, there's this, uh, story. I read this recently in a book about fleas, you know, like little fleas and they can jump like a hundred times their height or whatever. So you put a bunch of fleas in a, in a cup and they will jump right out. You put a clear plastic lid on it and they will jump a few times. They'll hit that, that ceiling, that plastic, and they'll stop jumping. And then after a little while, after a few days, you can take the plastic off and they'll never jump out of that cup. 
They just stay in that cup forever. They won't jump out because they think that there's a ceiling that they can't get to. And and that's a great analogy just for life, how we tend to like, you know, have limits. Yeah, true story. Uh, At least the book said it was true. So they're stuck at this level. They won't jump out. However, here's the fascinating thing. You take one of those fleas out and you put them in, let's say a huge bucket with a bunch of other fleas that have not been trained within minutes, they're jumping out of the bucket. So it just takes getting that flea away from the, for lack of a better term, term like losers that were that have all been trained the same way and putting them in a cup with other with others that they were able to break out of that, 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 that rut, right? Uh, and so you, many of us have been trained from birth to have a lid and we believe there's a level that we're, we are, we can attain and all of our family and friends. And maybe, maybe you're like really in a low place right now. And all your friends, all they want to do is sit around, play video games and smoke pot all day. Like it's going to be really hard to believe in yourself that you can jump higher than that. If you don't get around people who jump higher than that. So find a way to whatever you have to do to attach yourself to people who can jump higher. I love that. I always like to think that limitations are contagious. So yeah, oh, I love that. That's a great phrase. You should put that on your Instagram. That's oh, right I'm there. going to. Boom. That's a, that's a, that's the name. Of, I'll, I'll even reshare that. That's how good that is. <laughs> Done. I'm holding you to it. <laughs> okay. Um, so we did the advice. Now resources. I need three books from you. First book. Um, we always ask people to book starting out. Then I want a book on business and a book on real estate. Okay. Book on starting out. The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. I love, love, love that book. He makes the compound effect is all about being consistent in what you do and doing it over and over and over. Like a a magical change doesn't happen overnight. It happens from doing the right things over and over and over and over. It's not about going to the gym one time. It's about going to the gym every single day for a year. Uh, So the compound effect is all about that. It's phenomenal. I recommend it to everybody. Awesome. Business. I'm going to go with cash flow quadrant by, uh, by Robert Kiyosaki. The rich that part obviously is like a great book, but Castle Quadrant really taught me the value of building pipelines of passive income and to think of my business as not necessarily just I am, uh, you know, I'm, I am a business are one thing. It's really four types. There's entrepreneurs, there's employees, there's self, what is it? Self-employed, employed, business owner and investor, I think it is. And there's like, there's like the four different quadrants. So like if you're employed, you're just getting paid from someone else. You're self-employed, you own a bakery. Yeah, you're just baking cakes all day and you're still an employee. You should employ yourself. Business owners happen to own a business that then has employees that run things. And I like being a business owner. But then the fourth category is investor. You just take you just take all your money you have because you're so good at the business side of things and you dump it into other things. So I would rather be in the business and investor quadrant than the employee and self-employed quadrant. Awesome. And for investing. Real estate investing? Mm-hmm. Okay. Since I don't want to be self-promotion, I won't say any of my own books. I'm going to say there's a book out there. It's an older book now. It's called The Unofficial Guide to Real Estate Investing. The Unofficial Guide is like a whole series. They have Unofficial Guide to Dog Grooming or Unofficial Guide to Hiking. There's a million unofficial guides, kind of like dummies or whatever. But the book, The Unofficial Guide to Real Estate Investing was a phenomenally well-written book that really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff about the idea of the power of, of uh, properties and compounding your success over and over and over, which actually relates back to the compound effect, which is probably why I liked it so much. So there you go. Awesome. Thank you. Um, you know, Brandon, I like to tell the story. I met Brandon after I'd uh, 
been paralyzed and it was on a beach and your advice and I think what you've done at Bigger Pockets and everything just really helped me in a time that I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in my next stages in life after dramatically changed. And, uh, you know, you've helped out a ton of people and thank you so much for your time on yeah, the podcast you, and everything you do, man. And I got to get back out to Hawaii very soon. Yes, you do. Yeah, you should do that. All right. Thank you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at Cashflow with the number 2freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much.